Hey, it's Chris. Welcome to the After Party episode number six. Wow, I can't believe it's already been six full weeks of doing this podcast. Um, thank you guys for the reviews. Thank you for the coffees. Um, thanks for the support. You guys are amazing. Let's jump in, though. Let's not uh, dilly-dally too too much here. And let's just, I want to talk about Adobe's doing some interesting stuff. Um, and it's causing some some. Uh, waves to ripple around Apple land. And one of those waves comes from Photoshop, which dropped finally for the iPad. I'm talking about full-on Photoshop, supposedly. supposed to be the full version of Photoshop, which ended up not actually being the Photoshop everyone kind of claimed to want or expect. Um, Because a while back, um, Adobe got up on stage, this is probably like a year ago now, maybe longer, and they were like, Photoshop is coming to the iPad. And everyone was excited because Photoshop has a reputation on the Mac side of things, and, and PC too, but it has a reputation as being like the go-to photo editing, creative design tool for so many professionals. So the idea of that coming to the iPad, whether you're professional or not, like it's gonna be on the iPad and anybody can use it, that was exciting. Fast forward, all this time passes, there's a million other apps that are already on the iPad that can handle either some or most of, almost all of Photoshop uh, for Macs, you know, the things that it does, like shot for shot um, feature parody. One of those things being probably the most popular, Affinity Photo. Um, and there's also Affinity Designer, There's you know, which would be like uh, sort of like Adobe Illustrator for vector stuff um, versus raster stuff. If you're not a designer and you're like, what is he talking about, vector raster? Vector's like infinitely resizable um, graphics. So like your logos, those kind of things, those are usually done in vector uh, because it can blow up and be on a huge billboard or it can work great. Uh, in like a print ad or put on a shirt or a hat or something, raster stuff is like pixelated. And if you blow it up too big, um, it's not infinitely resizable and it'll start to break down or whatever. How do I know this? Because I went to school to be a graphic designer, even though I don't really do that stuff anymore. But anyways, there's all these really powerful uh, programs, apps on the iPad already that filled in the Photoshop gap because it was gone. And then, and and they're pretty good. Um, and from what I hear, I, I talk to other creators who use like Affinity Photo all the time and who have been saying lately that they like it better even than Photoshop, the version that just dropped for the iPad. So here's what's crazy. Like I sort of had been waiting all, this whole time with all this anticipation for Photoshop because I'm old school and I had grown up, so to speak, using Photoshop. Like it was my go-to thing. And once you get like ingrained in something, once you learn it, and you know how it works, and it sort of becomes muscle memory to do a task within that uh, framework, then that is the easiest thing for you. It's your go-to. And Photoshop has been that for me since like version seven, way back in the day, way before CC, Creative Cloud, and all that stuff. So I was definitely looking forward to this. And I've only played with it just a little bit, um, but when I opened it up, it, it was a lot different, which makes sense because it can't be like exactly the same as it is on the Mac. I understand that. And honestly, I wasn't really expecting that, but it felt like pretty foreign to me once I opened it up. And especially the right-hand side, left-hand side with all those tools, um, it was pretty familiar. The right-hand side, the, the way that they chose to redo layers and sort of have like these quick layer uh, functions that let you like manipulate the layer that you're on 
without like the full layer palette. It's just weird. It's different. Now I understand that it's going to take some uh, adjusting, whatever, and that's cool. I'm I'm happy to adjust whenever. But there's some specific features missing that a lot of people aren't happy about. And I'm not going to dive into all the details because not everybody's a designer here. Nobody really cares. We're just kind of talking about the wider experience, I think, of iPad apps in general. But we're getting back into that conversation right now about Mac versus iPad, tablet versus laptop, and which one is better. And a lot of it has nothing to do with hardware stuff. A, a big part of that conversation does have to do with hardware, and people are going to have preferences. Um, but the larger part of the conversation, I think, has to do with software. Um, the iPad Pro is super capable. It's so fast. It's screaming fast, um, and it can do cool things that you can't do with the mouse, but you can also use the mouse, too. So you can have the Apple Pencil and the mouse. Um, and so you're ready to uh, get rid of your old Mac and just switch all the way over. And one of the things you need is Photoshop. And... Mm, it drops and it's just not what you need fully. And that was the experience for me for a long time with like web stuff on the iPad. Like I had Squarespace websites and I couldn't actually manipulate them and make simple little changes on the iPad. I had to have a Mac around or some other computer to actually do everything that I needed to do for my business. And I couldn't get away with just my iPad. And that's sort of like what's happening here. And so the context I just want to put out there is, um, yeah, it took a long time for Photoshop to come. And this might be the story for other apps too, uh, whether from Adobe or, or elsewhere that are going to end up coming over as the iPad Pro continues to get more and more pro because of the software experience um, and people are paying. The good news is people are paying attention. Adobe's paying attention and they're not just trying to give you a light version of something, right? The iPad has become so popular um, and offers such a good uh, canvas for apps that the developers are investing, big, big developers. Now, it takes a, a whole ton of people to reimagine an app like Photoshop. Photoshop is not a simple app. And if you've been a user, you know how bloated it has gotten over the years um, as new features get added and grafted in. And whenever whenever you graft in you know, new features and code onto old code, it, it's, it's going to balloon, right, and become a crazy thing. So you can't just take that and say it's going on the iPad now. You got to start over and say what are we going to add first. And so that is what Adobe's been doing. Uh, what can we offer for the first attempt that's going to make the most people hopefully as happy as possible? And unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, fortunately for Adobe, Photoshop is so well liked on the Mac that uh, people really anticipated a really great Photoshop experience on the iPad when it landed and it only had a few early features. Um, it, you know, people were upset because it wasn't what they were expecting, but it's sort of the necessary way to develop something of this magnitude. Um, I think not being really a, a developer myself, but, but the good news is it's going to continue improving. You can be a hundred percent sure of that. Like they're going to take this feedback and they're going to say, okay, here's what we need to do next and fastest and start building it out. So, so I know I'm personally, uh, I'm still excited for Photoshop, honestly, on the iPad because I know it's going to improve. And sometimes in the tech world, things just work slower than you want to. I'm, not, I'm talking about I'll, I'll know of a camera or something that gets leaked or announced, and I really am excited about it, but it doesn't really become available for like 
six or seven or eight months and then by the time it does launch i'm a little bit less excited about it it's just tech can be very slow it can be fast in some ways and can be very slow in others and so i'm personally though i'm just saying i'm still excited for what photoshop on the ipad can be and hopefully will be so if you're like me and uh you've been waiting for this too and you're seeing that man photoshop only got like two point whatever stars uh right now and you're like man that's such a disappointment give us some time um, you know, Adobe is a big company with a lot of resources and I think they're very serious about Photoshop, uh, and making that a good experience. So give us some time. Let me just run something by you. We have the iPhone pro, we have the iPad pro, we have the MacBook pro. We now have AirPods pro. What is one Apple device for which no pro version exists, but one that you wish there was a pro version of. Are you seeing where I'm going here? I'm talking about Apple Watch Pro. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Now, I haven't seen any rumors about this or anything. Um, it's not like I have some insider information and I'm, I'm you know, giving it to you, right? I, that's not what this is about. This is just about like, I'm seeing a trend here with Apple and they're saying, hey, we, we're segmenting our products and we're saying, here's, some products that are pretty much good enough for most tasks and for the majority of people. And then we're also gonna make this other segment uh, for people who maybe want a little bit more or want an extra um, dose of Apple goodness. Uh, they wanna get more out of that device or, or they rely on stuff in a different way than just your average person does. So there's a pattern that has been emerging and one place that we haven't seen that pattern fully develop is with the Apple Watch. Now, here's what I think. And when I'm thinking about the Apple Watch, um, we already sort of, in a way, we, we have segmentation within the Apple Watch in a way that we don't with other Apple products. And what I'm talking about is there's more expensive versions of the Apple Watch already, um, but they don't do anything that the less expensive versions don't do. You know what I mean? So we have the price difference already, and it mostly has to do with like materials. Like, do you want a ceramic case or do you want an aluminum case, for instance? Um, so we have like a price differential, but we don't have uh, a feature differential. And if you're wondering like what could a pro Apple Watch offer that a regular Apple Watch couldn't, um, that's sort of what I wanna dream about right now. Just for instance, like one area where a pro Apple Watch could really be different from a normal one, would have to do with the bands. I'm not talking about just like changing out the color or the material. Um, Apple has filed several different patents that would allow them to do interesting things with the bands, whether that's putting an antenna in there. Um, I don't know if this is an Apple patent, but I've certainly seen this and you might have too. Uh, somebody came out with a band a while ago that, uh, and I never saw the light of day, but it had a camera built in, like a lens. Um, there's interesting things that Apple could do uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of health-related stuff, like sensors and stuff that you could build in to that. Um, in the band department, that Apple could really use to make the Apple Watch that much cooler, that much more exciting. I mean, there could be touch sensors uh, to control it there. There could be a secondary screen at some point when flexible displays are, are really coming into their own. There's a lot that Apple could do um, with the bands to make 
you know, a better, cooler, more interesting, differentiated pro experience, potentially. Something else that Apple could potentially do is embed different sorts of sensors or whatever. A long time ago, I don't remember where this was that I talked about this, but I talked about how Apple had a patent, I think a patent, um, or somebody had brought this up, Apple should do this. In any case, somewhere somebody brought up that Apple might have some sort of a system in mind that would let you control what's on the screen without having to tap it using gestures. So like if you're presented with a menu um, and like a list of four options or whatever, you could just tilt your wrist up or down to select something and then kind of move it over to the right or left to actually select it or go back um, or whatever. And that kind of thing sounds really cool. Now, maybe that makes more sense to bake into just the general Apple Watch experience. Um, I don't know. But what I'm saying is, if you thought the Apple Watch was the Apple Watch and it was never going to change and it could never get better or maybe there could never be a pro version of an Apple Watch, then you're totally wrong because there's a lot of exciting stuff already in patents or that other people have dreamed up or just concept videos on YouTube or that you could come up with in your own brain. You're like, I wish the Apple Watch could do this. There's so much that it could do, um, more, more other devices that it could like start to replace. Um, you know, one, one aspect where it could really be different is that a pro Apple Watch maybe could be its own thing and not be so reliant on an iPhone, just for instance. Like at some point in the future, as wearables continue to take off, and I'm going to talk about this later in the podcast, but wearables are like taking off um, and Apple's leading the charge there really with Apple Watch, with AirPods. Um, nobody matches Apple when it comes to wearables. And we're looking at some sort of an AR device coming from Apple sometime here soon. We're hearing news about their potential partnership with Valve, um, the gaming company that might be happening. Um, so anyways, as wearables become more the norm and less like ex just accessories, there's going to come a time, probably, I'm guessing, where the iPhone is um, less critical, potentially, to uh, the tech and your ecosystem, your personal ecosystem that you bring with you everywhere. Right now, it's like central and it's your most used device. And sometimes it powers other things like your Apple Watch or your AirPods. But at some point in the future, we might go post iPhone and maybe something like your Apple Watch is, you know, powerful enough um, to power everything and work together with an AR device. Your AirPods are already, whether they're pro or not, those are already offering like an augmented uh, reality experience. In some ways, it's just with that transparency mode, especially, it's an augmented audio experience uh, instead of a visual. Um, augmentation. So we're moving in that direction. And I just wanted to pique your interest with this video uh, about what's like one of the major Apple devices that we haven't seen a pro version of yet that I would like to. And that comes to mind, the Apple Watch. I mean, can you think of something that is more exciting than that? Even if you're like, maybe an Apple Watch, you can't dream of like what it would be that would be so different. But I think just if you're an Apple fan, if this is the first time that you've ever heard somebody talk about uh, Apple Watch Pro, um, then it probably makes you like excited and you're like, oh yeah, I, I would buy that right now, even if you don't know what would make it Pro or whatever, right? It's just exciting to think about, that's all. So let me know, if you're watching this and not just listening uh, on the Clips channel, and if you're just listening, then go subscribe to the Clips channel later so you can get these segments in visual form. But um, if, you're, if you're watching this, let me know like what would you want to see? What could you dream up for an Apple Watch Pro? And maybe someday in the future, we make a video about this, I don't know. All right, since we're just talking about the Apple Watch, let's continue to talk about the Apple Watch because I just wanna talk about 
how enormously popular the Apple Watch actually is. I knew it was popular. I didn't realize that it owns basically 50% of the smartwatch market. Wow. Can you like comprehend that? I, I guess I can on the one hand because when I look around and I see smartwatches, it's by far the most popular thing that I see, by far. But on the other hand, um, you know, not everybody has an iPhone. And you got to have an iPhone right now to have an Apple Watch. Um, so I guess I just didn't expect it to be 50% of the market, but it's 50% of the market. Let's talk about it. The smartwatch category, the market for smartwatches has grown over 40%, 42% in the last quarter. That's enormous growth. In the last segment on this podcast, we just talked about how wearables are just becoming such a big deal. And a lot of that is driven by the Apple Watch itself. So just to put it in perspective, the same quarter that we're talking about here where Apple saw this growth that saw over 6 million Apple Watches shipped, the same quarter a year ago saw only 4 million Apple Watch shipments. It's a rise of 51% um, just for the Apple Watch. And so we have Google acquiring Fitbit and we have Samsung trying to be really serious about smartwatches. Um, but for Apple to be experiencing that much growth for the Apple Watch, it just sort of blows my mind. Now, speaking of Samsung, Samsung is in second place. They're behind the Apple Watch in terms of smartwatch shipments, but Samsung's increase in smartwatch shipments is less than half the increase in smartwatch shipments that Apple saw. Uh, I think Fitbit also grew, but it was by like a very minuscule amount, um, and it was far less than Samsung. Fitbit used to be, I think, in second place, but Samsung just recently overtook them. So let's talk a little bit about Google buying Fitbit. Um, in fact, it's interesting. I know one of the investors I once came in contact with, I don't know him really, uh, who was out in this area that invested in Fitbit and probably just made a bunch of money. Um, but it's interesting that Google saw Fitbit as something that they would want to acquire. What I'm hearing is that they paid so little for it. It sounds like a lot. What it was like $2 billion or something. But in business terms, it really wasn't that much money because oftentimes when there's a deal like this, somebody wants to spend like three times um, the value of the company, but they only spent like two times. So anyways, it wasn't a lot of money um, in startup land, in business land, in tech land. And so people are like, what is Google purchasing here? Uh, are they really interested in Fitbit the product or are they more interested in Fitbit's patents and maybe their employees um, and more like non-product type of stuff. The, the people and the things that go into the products, but not the product itself. Apparently, from the chatter that I've been seeing, that is what Google was probably most likely interested in in that acquisition. Now, is that enough? Acquiring Fitbit, getting those patent, patents, um, getting the people um, so some extra brain power, is that enough to help it compete with the Apple Watch? Number one, I'm I'm kind of excited. I'm glad that they're going to offer more competition because more competition is good. I have an Apple Watch and I want it to get better. And I think it's Apple's doing a good job of improving it. Um, we talked about things sometimes moving slowly uh, earlier in this podcast. Well, you know, uh, sometimes year to year when you don't see huge uh, changes and and the change this last year with the Apple Watch was just that always on display. That was like the main thing. There was other things, but that was the main thing. And so sometimes it can seem like man, I wish that it could uh, get cooler and better faster. Well, that's what competition tends to do. So I'm excited that Google's heading down this route and they're getting, uh, I guess, more serious about their smartwatch ambitions with this Fitbit purchase. But the question is, 
is it going to get any better? I have never actually been very attracted to Fitbit's product. And I remember not long ago when they came out with their latest version of their flagship smartwatch, and it sort of had that Apple Watch vibe, but not really. And it didn't really look like too great, but it didn't really have its own design language either because it did sort of feel very derivative of an Apple Watch. But I don't just want like fitness stuff on my watch. And that's mostly what Fitbit is all about. Um, whereas the Apple watch, it does so many other things besides just fitness, like to be clear, uh, health stuff, fitness stuff, that's very core to the Apple watch. It wouldn't be an Apple watch without those things. Um, and that's what Apple's really pushing and is excited about. But me as a consumer, like that's cool. I'm glad about the health stuff. I said this many times, sorry to bore you, but I also love the other aspects of the Apple watch. And that's why I made that video that was talking about, um, all the underrated Apple watch features that everyone kind of takes for granted and forgets about, maybe needs to rediscover and relearn. Because if you take all that quote unquote boring stuff out um, of the Apple Watch, uh, well that actually is a lot of the stuff that makes the experience so great in the first place. And it's it's stuff that lives under the hood. Uh, it's not the big flagship features, but there's just so much really cool stuff. Um, and I'll just refer you to that video if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, that makes the Apple Watch so cool and so different from something like a Fitbit. And not to mention the app ecosystem either, because there's a lot of third-party apps on the Apple Watch. Um, as hard as it is for developers to develop for the Apple Watch, and I, from what I understand, Apple doesn't make it like super easy, and uh, app developers have wanted um, a better environment to be developing in on the Apple Watch for a long time. Apple has that really kind of locked down. Um, but even so, there's so many more apps on the uh, App Store for the Apple Watch that and nothing else even comes close, not even close. And here's something else, like every time I see the animation of like this, the little figures that are supposed to motivate you for like running and stuff on the new uh, Samsung watches, they look so goofy to me. Um, and this isn't to put down anyone with a Samsung watch or that has those, it's just even the design of the interface is subpar. Like in a, it's a goofy comical way. And I think they did it on purpose and made it sort of goofy and comical, but it's just not, Apple, there's something about Apple's design that is good and it syncs up with my design aesthetics. But either way, the Apple Watch is a massive, huge hit and people don't even realize how much that is uh, driving sales of Apple things, just the Apple Watch by itself. It's pretty amazing. Next up, I wanna talk about Apple and privacy. And we've had this conversation so many times, you're probably like sick of seeing Apple and privacy in the headlines, but. Apple just redesigned their privacy uh, portion of their website. So apple.com slash privacy. This is what we're gonna be discussing. And what they've done is taken a really boring subject, uh, an important subject, but usually kind of boring, and a really boring web page that it used to be presented on, totally redid it and made it very, very consumer friendly so that if you, a non-lawyer, were to go check it out, um, you would be greeted by something that's bright and colorful and uh, inviting. It wants to be read rather than something that's tiny type and full of all kinds of crazy words. And the reason this is interesting is because every tech company that you've ever had to like agree to something uh, with, or if you don't realize like you're on a website even sometimes, well, there's a policy governing that website and you're agreeing to it you know, just by being there according to these privacy policies and whatever. So what Apple's doing is they're saying, um, we've been talking a lot uh, in our ads and at our events about privacy and how important it is and how easy we're making it uh, on you and how much we care about our, our customers. So what they're doing here is they're 
showing us that privacy almost is like a product now at Apple. The Verge pointed out, if you go to this site, the privacy page now looks like a product page. Like if you were to go to AirPods or the Apple Watch or the iPhone, um, whatever, um, that page would look kind of similar to this page now, the privacy page, because it's been updated to, I guess in a way, I guess in a way to sell you on, on this product, which is Apple's privacy. Like, I'm not gonna lie, when I see a privacy statement or policy or big long legal agreement on a phone before I can start using it, I don't read it all. And I know you don't either. No one goes line by line. Somebody out there probably does. But I mean, 99.999999% of the population doesn't read all that stuff. Um, so this is just crazy that Apple cares enough, I think, to go out and is confident enough that they can you know, deliver what they're saying um, to put it out there. Uh, and and it's also crazy that people like me are covering it, like people in the press and media or whatever it, are finding it that interesting to cover. But it is an important thing. And it's worth checking out, honestly. When you're done driving, or if you're at your computer even right now listening, you should go to apple.com slash privacy and look at it because it's worth looking at. Nothing else out there is like this. So what's cool is there's a statement at the top. You get a nice little uh, Apple logo that turns into uh, like a padlock animation. Um, and then you scroll down and it goes product by product. And in just a few simple words, it tells you how Apple is going to protect your privacy with that product. Um, so it's not just a nebulous thing like Apple's going to protect your privacy. No, it's like here is how Safari is going to protect your privacy. Here's how about Siri. And it goes through an itemized list and makes it exciting with animations and colors. And then if you want to know more about it, you click the more button, you get a couple extra paragraphs um, about it. It's just really user friendly. And that's what's that's that's the mind blowing part about it. The uh, The main thing here is that it's actually skimmable. Um, so you could come to this and say, like if you're an Android person or if you're in Windows, you could come to this and be like, okay, what is this all about? Is it something that I want to be a part of? And you actually could go through it and skim it and understand it because all the important stuff is in little digestible pieces um, that actually will make sense to you when you read it. But you know, and Google, Google, American company, um, useful, a lot of great products that I even rely on, somebody who's so steeped in the Apple universe. Um, so I do hope that this has a, a bigger ripple effect and um, forces other companies to, to compete with this as a product, um, not just something that's hidden in the background, whether there are good privacy policies or bad. Um, and I, I hope that this has a really good net effect in that, uh, People are gonna say, okay, Apple gave us that, I demand that from every other tech company. And then if there's a policy at Google or, or just any other tech company, I just keep saying that because it's top of mind because it's another big tech company, but if there's a policy there that isn't good, that they wouldn't want consumers to see and they wouldn't want to make really easy and accessible for them to find out about, then they're going to look bad next to Apple if Apple's making it so plain English for people to comprehend and then they're continuing to hide stuff, that's not a good look. So I'm, I don't know, I'm pretty excited about this privacy policy page. I can't even believe I'm saying that. When I started Daily Tech, it's not something I thought I would ever, ever cover, ever. But in this day and age, it's something that's more important than ever before. Um, how your data is harvested, how it's used or not used, what it's used for, 
I don't know. I just I'm I'm pretty excited that Apple put this out there, and I think you should be too. Let me just go through real quick and just give you sort of like a quick breakdown of some of the categories, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here. So I'm seeing the Safari page, and it says Safari throws trackers off your trail. That's pretty simple to understand. Whereas something like Chrome, uh, as a product, is made to do some tracking, right? Maps makes your location history history. Uh, so not only are they telling you what it does, they're putting the little clever marketing spin in there too. So the Maps app doesn't associate your data with your Apple ID and Apple doesn't keep a history of where you've been. Cool. Again, think of uh, the other map app out there that you may have heard of or used several times. Can they say the same thing? I don't know that they can. The Photos app protects your images from unwanted exposure. Messages are only seen by who you send them to. Siri learns what you need, not who you are. And then we have the new sign in with Apple and a paragraph about that in the app store. And you could even go on and learn lots more. That's just a sampling to just kind of give you an idea of how very simple and easy it is. And Apple's obviously, if you're out there being like, well, yeah, of course they're you know showing this stuff off because it's like a selling point. Well, exactly. Uh, it is a selling point, so why not treat it like that? So anyways, you could go, that's just the overview. There's features, there's control, there's a transparency report, and then the full, big, huge, old-school-looking privacy policy with all the you know, jargon and uh, lots and lots of words. So it's still there for you, too. Um, but wow, this is, this is really cool. Uh, I hope this is kicking off a revolution here in terms of privacy policies that you can actually read and get something out of. All right, um, you know, I think I'm gonna end this podcast here today. If there's something that you really like or that you want to see uh, covered in a future episode, let me know. You can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Daily Tech, spelled Daily T-E-K-K there. Um, you can let me know if you're watching uh, this on YouTube. Leave me a comment, uh, whatever. But I will catch you guys in the next episode. Later.